0: songs is weird <clears throat> and it goes like this only 55 miles to go to get to my sweet prairie flower the speed limit's 55 that should take me exactly an hour very good barb only 55 miles to go but with 10 miles further I drive I notice with dread there's a sign up ahead that says speed zone slow down 45 only 45 miles to go to get to my sweet prairie flower. The speed limit's now 45. It should take me exactly an hour. Only 45 miles to go, but with 10 miles further I drive, I notice with dread there's a sign up ahead that says, speed zone, slow down, 35. Only 35 miles to go to get to my sweet prairie flower. The speed limit's now 35. It should take me exactly an hour. You see how this thing goes, right, for a little while. Well. At the end, he winds up deciding that he's only going to, uh, you know, it gets down to about like 15 or something like that. And he just decides, I'm just going to get a hotel. You can come see me because I'm only an hour away. (laughs) The book of Ecclesiastes. There it is in song form. Do everything you want to. Try to accomplish everything, but the world conspires against you so that you accomplish nothing. Nothing. Those are the words of the preacher, and after we get an introduction from the author, the the one to assemble all of the preacher's stuff together, we hear the opening words of the preacher in verse 2, vanity of vanities says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. We remember that the word preacher is probably better, more literally translated as the gatherer Which doesn't just mean somebody who has somebody over for Thanksgiving. In the Old Testament, the people who called others together were always king-like figures. And so in the preacher's words, we have somebody who's gathered together what seems to be like the best of all the kings. He uses the Solomon kind of persona. Although we mentioned that it's probably not Solomon or else some of his boasts aren't really all that impressive because if he's only boasting to be better than all the kings before him in Jerusalem, that would have been one guy and that didn't quite work out as well as you might have thought. So we have a Solomon like figure, a king in Israel like figure who is this preacher who has unlimited resources and comes to some really flawed conclusions. We're gonna hear from the guy who's gathered all this stuff up together. We heard from him one verse one, and we're gonna not hear from him again until the end of chapter twelve. But the reason all this has been gathered together is so that we could hear, in one way of saying it, the desperation of the world around you. Because this is their ambition, their path. But you know what they're experiencing? Decade after decade of the speed limit slowing down. Decade after decade of them just what feels like spinning their wheels. Trying to get somewhere, but never really getting closer. One of the the phrases in that song is, I keep getting closer and closer, but I don't seem to get any nearer. And that's the way life feels sometimes. It feels very much, and we're going to look at two topics Under the sun, because this one phrase, vanity, we've translated in other situations, other translations of the Bible, um, as futility or meaninglessness, or the more literal, strangely enough, we said last week, comes from the message, which is smoke, or what we're calling vapor. The vapors and vanities of life wind up leaving us feeling like we're getting closer to something, but never nearer to it. We seem to be accomplishing the world's goals, but it doesn't do something deep inside. And the truth is, if we make Christianity nothing more than platitudes, but we think the world offers reality, we are blasphemers and heretics. Because no matter what we sing, no matter what we declare, if we live differently, we are living a lie which is that God is full of hot air and the world's got reality. The book of Ecclesiastes is giving us four weeks together. Last week was week one. This is week two to be able to unpack that and turn entirely the tables around and say, no, the world is full of hot air. The offer of life, pleasure, satisfaction, meaning, justice under the sun. If you limit your perspective to what's under the sun, it would be as simple and meaningless as saying, guys, I'm sorry. Space travel doesn't does not exist. Why? Because look, this only goes up nine feet. I mean, seriously, do you guys possibly believe that we can go to the moon? Look around. Look up. Do you see the moon anywhere? No. Because if you limit your vision to what is above you, what you perceive above you, you are as foolish as the author of Ecclesiastes or the preacher of Ecclesiastes, at least the way we want to call him. This guy who's gathered us together says, we're going to for a few weeks here, pretend there's nothing above the sun. He uses the phrase here under heaven. He uses the phrase repeatedly under the sun. And we're going to look at two things. The one that Leslie read to us was about how he tried to find joy really under the sun. And then how he tried to find some sorts of achievement under the sun. But the two things we're going to see is that there is no joy in pleasure and there is no achievement in work. Once again, have a great week. See ya. <laughs> There's more here, but that's where this starts. For us to figure out where joy and achievement actually arrive in our lives, we have to hear where it isn't first. This is going to be a bit of a process of elimination. And the book of Ecclesiastes is much like that. Let's limit it to anything else. What are we left with? Well, we got to get above the sun to find it. But below the sun, the first point we're going to see is that there is no ultimate joy from the pleasures of this life. And let's listen again to what Leslie just showed for us. He says in chapter 2 verse 1, I said in my heart come now I will test you with pleasure enjoy yourself. But behold this was also vanity. In other words, he's setting up an experiment. He's saying we are going to experiment together just like I did with my heart to see if what the world offers for us is really going to do us any good. So verse three, I tried to cheer my body with wine. Now he said, I didn't become just, uh, just a mindless drunk. I was still sort of guiding my heart with wisdom, but my body and my brain, man, they were definitely affected by wine. I got the best I could buy. I drank as much as I could and it didn't quite work out for me because what I was trying to do, he said at the end of verse three, is to see what was good for the children of man to do Under heaven, again, sort of an under the sun kind of phrase, during the few days of their life. And if you're kind of wondering why is he so obsessed with the futility of life, go back and listen to last week where we saw how time and death invalidate all of our illusions of permanence, all of our illusions of the fact that what we build endures forever. He was basically saying, nah, man, time and death are just going to mock you terribly when you try to live that way. So if we only have a few days of this life, is there any good to be enjoyed ultimately under the sun that not just brings pleasure, but joy, but not just has us work, but actually achieve something. And so he starts into what he enjoys. Now, some of what he enjoys is what he builds, but it's as though he wants to get back to the garden of Eden. Listen to the way that it's kind of phrased. It almost sounds Edenic. I made great works I built houses and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks, all kinds of trees. I made pools and water of forest growing from trees. And I bought male and female slaves. And I had slaves who were born in my house. Now, again, just for verse 7, so that we can be very clear, this is not the Bible like endorsing slavery. Alright? Just like the other verse was not endorsing drunkenness. This is a guy, and I would not recommend this experiment. It's been done. Don't try to repeat it. But... He's saying, look around. People get drunk to have a good time. People build things for themselves. People even exert power over other people and not just over these people, but over their children. So everything's growing in this world that he wants, right? Every garden is growing. Pools are there. Even his slaves are multiplying because they're having kids, all of whom belong to him. And I had, verse 7, continuing on with this idea of biological growth. I had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered silver and gold and treasure. I got singers, men and women, and concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So, verse 9, I became great and surpassed all before me. Now, remember, my wisdom remained with me. This has been an experiment, but I gave myself to this experiment. I I wanted to make sure that there was nothing you could see in my experiment where you'd say, well, you didn't try that. You didn't try that. You didn't try that. Technologically, no. Did he have video games? No. But he did have concubines and singers. Did he have every drug available to him today? No, but he had the best wine of the day. He took what was offered to him in the day and said, there's nothing any of you could have done that I haven't done. Now, sum it up this way. And this is where Eden seems to a little have an echo again. Whatever my eyes desired... I did not keep from them when she saw that the fruit of the tree was desirable. I plucked the fruit and I ate it like a slobbering idiot. I had juice just pouring down. I had as much as I wanted. I just went to that tree and I just gobbled everything that I possibly could and I kept my heart from no pleasure. My heart found pleasure in all my toil and this was my Reward for my toil. It's almost as though he's setting us up to say, that's it. Can you think of anything else that I could have enjoyed more than wine and my works or gardens and great works or silver and slaves or singers and sex? Whatever I wanted, I went for it. There was a time we were meeting in the back behind the barn with a group of guys. And I, I, I asked this question. I said, if, if the Lord were to return today and take you from your life in its current form, is there anything that you've been waiting for you where you'd be like, um, Jesus, could you give me a week? Because I haven't been able to this. Now, I was around a group with some young men there. And I can tell you they were thinking about the concubines a little bit like, well, wait a sec. I, that means I go to heaven as a virgin. I don't, I don't know what I think about that, but it's not just that kind of desire that drives us in life, Right no, no, wait, 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 I've been working on this project. That project was going to get me that promotion. And that project and that promotion were going to bring me the joy and the the feeling that I really wanted, right? That was to be my reward. Marriage was to be my reward. This thing that I've been waiting for, that's to be my reward. This is what he says at the very end. This was my reward. That's all you got. Then I considered, verse 11, all that my hands had done and the toil I expended. And behold, all was vapor. All was vanity and striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. That phrase, three times in chapter one, five times here in chapter two, 19 times for the rest of the book. Under the sun, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. That's his phrase. Look up, see the sun, see the sky. That's all you got. Everything you can perceive and experience from here down. This is the best of it. Can you list anything that I didn't enjoy in everything I've just told you? Because I tested my heart and I gave myself to it. Is there anything you would have wanted that I didn't get to experience? I don't think so. I had unlimited resources and particularly in a peasant culture more or less like what he's referring to where you have only what you've earned for that day where the main form of currency is a day's wage and you had to work for that day in order to get it. He's got everything. He is just representing life under the sun and there is nothing. His conclusion at the end is that life's joys disappoint. They Always disappoint. Early on in Tom Brady's career, after I think his second or third Super Bowl, he was getting interviewed and he was already, they've said of Tom Brady, he probably has had at least two separate Hall of Fame careers. Like if you divided his career after the first part, he was already going to be in the Hall of Fame. Or if you said that that didn't even exist and then you just took the second half of his career, he would be in the Hall of Fame just for that. This is a guy who's been like, Two people's worth of Hall of Fame work. And right after that first one, they were interviewing him. And his phrase was this, God, it's got to be more than this. And honestly, if you went back and asked him, did you get everything you wanted? You divorced the one wife, you got the supermodel wife. You got all the popularity, all the fame. You had two Hall of Fame careers. Are you deeply satisfied now? He'd come back and say, nah, man, the preacher got it right. The joys of life disappoint. Point one. Let's move on. Because it gets worse. That's the nice thing that you're about to see. Not only is pleasure under the sun cursed, but really the way that 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 we experience work under the sun, man, that's the curse, right? Cursed is the ground because of you thorns and thistles and pain because of you sweat on your brow because of you. And the preacher says, "Ah, let's test the curse. I don't know. It can't be that bad. Let's see what we can really do. And if work is cursed, is it really cursed? And he says, yes, Work is cursed. This is going to have echoes of last week. So just listen along. We jump to verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is a vapor. This is smoke. This is vanity. Work is cursed by death. But it's not just cursed by death. It's cursed by what we saw last week. The indifference of death. Death doesn't care how you lived. It still has the exact same impact. Listen, he just keeps ruminating over this. Says, So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who's toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. It's not just death. It's the inconsequential nature of what you've done because somebody else is going to get your stuff and it doesn't matter whether they're righteous or you were righteous, whether they're lazy and you work. It doesn't matter. You don't get to keep it. So work is cursed. Work is cursed by death. Work is cursed by indifference. And then before you die, let's just kind of deal with the process of death. Work is cursed by exhaustion. Verse 22. What is man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. You ever had a work week, day, month? You ever had a career like that? It just feels like you're vexed and tired day and night. That's because work is cursed, and this is a vanity. Verse 24 there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. So is work's curse ultimately countered by God? In other words, is the way to get past the curse to just sort of buck up and enjoy it? Is that the best that this world can give? Because maybe that's what God's doing. Maybe God's saying, yeah, things aren't going to last the way you want. Maybe you won't be able to enjoy it the way you want. But at least there's this, the ultimate counter of this curse is just make the best of it maybe, I think there's a little bit of wisdom here we're going to, you know, kind of come back to. But it's not just that. It's because the, the curse of work is also complicated then by sin. For to the one, verse 26, who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give it to the one who pleases God. This is also vanity and a striving after wind. Now there's something in verse 26 that sometimes does represent a dynamic in the kingdom of God. God takes the work and the wealth of others and sometimes provides amazingly for his people through it. Now when those moments happen, we receive them as a gift from God. We are Not to slander terribly the folks who built this building, but we don't believe them to be workers of the kingdom of God based on what they hold to about Jesus and his kingdom. And yet we're really grateful for this building they made. They did a really good job. Things are holding together well. There weren't leaks, there weren't problems, and it was nice to be able to add quality work to a quality building rather than trying to re-straighten something that was shifting and cracking This parking lot seems like it's going to endure to the end of creation because it's about 12 inches thick full of concrete. They just did a good job. We're grateful for that. When those moments happen in the kingdom of God, we see verse 26 and we're like, yes, good, thumbs up to that. But in a darker take, it's almost as though the preacher is saying, so hang on a sec, here's the weird thing. If you're righteous, sometimes you have to be done with your work and leave it to the unrighteous. But he's saying, but it's not like there's any benefit in being a sinner or being unrighteous because sometimes what God does is take the stuff of the unrighteous and then go give it to the righteous. So be righteous. Is there a guarantee that that's going to work out? Nope. Be, Wasn't well, just go for it and be a sinner. Nope. It's almost as though this despair that he's giving himself up to is just, it's pervasive. It is, to sum him up at the end of 26, it is a vanity, it is a striving after the wind. And if we take this interpretation, the preacher is kind of a collective experience of kings, right? Where the work of what uh, the preacher was just enjoying in the beginning of chapter 2 there, that's probably closer to the list of what happened in Hezekiah's time. Than Solomon's time, so if we take that perspective, you, you you may not know too much about the kings of Judah and their legacy, but it's easy to think that after the civil war took place, after Solomon's son Rehoboam was incredibly stupid, and decided I'm going to increase dad's taxes rather than listening to the appeals of my people. And after another adversary, Jeroboam, came along and then used that political capital to be able to take all the tribes of the north, every one of those kings in the north, wicked, 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 wicked. All they did was establish idols so that people never go down to Jerusalem. They set up two places of worship. If you read the books of kings, you will find that nobody in Israel was good. But where you could be wrong then is thinking that in everybody down south was good. But that's not true. Only 40% of the kings down in the south could even be considered good. 20 of them total, eight of them may be righteous. Now that's a better record than what's going on up north. But what it meant for the legacy of these kings is that you rarely, if ever, had two godly kings back to back. It was almost that every revolution that was brought about morally and spiritually was followed by a son who was then like, ah, forget you. What are you seeing? You're seeing exactly what the preacher in Ecclesiastes is talking about. It doesn't matter whether you're godly or ungodly. Somebody's coming along behind you and everything you can work for is just going to get thrown off course entirely. He says it this way then continuing on now. For a little bit, let me just warn you, this is like the if you're a fan of the Lego Batman movie. In the very beginning, Batman comes on and he's like, get ready for some reading. We've exhausted everything we're going to look at in chapter two, but I am going to read to you a bunch of verses that are going to help us just hear the collective weight of what this despair is. So get ready for reading. Here it is. Chapter four, verse seven. I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet there's no end to all his toil. And all, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So that he asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is vanity and an unhappy business. So if you can't guarantee who your stuff goes to and you just don't have any kids so that all of it's yours, guess what? Somebody's still going to get it. But that person never stops working. That's a vanity. Verse chapter five, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, well, more people want them. They increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? It's almost though sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Early on, when I was a teacher, I didn't do a lot over the summers, and so there was a guy in our school who uh, he was a, a, a railing installer. He made stairs, and 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 uh, installed the railings for him, and. One of the interesting things is that the money wasn't in the making of the stairs. The money was ultimately in installing the railing. And that was the way his business product was set up. Well, he let too many people know that. And so some folks in his business realized, wait. We could just order the stairs somewhere else. We could make all his profit margin just doing all the railing installs. And you don't need a lot of shop for that or anything for that. And so basically, a few people in his company whom he had trained up, gutted his entire business and went out. By the time I got to him, that had already happened. He had a shell of a shop, basically. He was really good. That was a shell of a shop, just so that you're all aware. And he was basically looking at this place and saying like, wow, I... I worked really hard to build all this up, and now somebody took all my profit margin. But at the end of the day, he said, you know, I sleep better. It's me. It's this other guy. Life is a lot simpler right now. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that nobody who runs a business can ever experience, but haven't you seen that kind of thing happen over and over and over? More reading. Chapter 5, verse 14. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those wretches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Chapter 5, verse 16. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him, for who, who, to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Chapter six, verse one. There's an evil I've seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing of all he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity is a grievous evil. Isn't there a certain sense where you're like, hey, preach, we've already heard this. You made this point. He's like, yeah, I, I can't stop thinking about it. We are four chapters later, and he's coming back and making the same repetitive point. There is no joy and pleasure, and now there is no ultimate achievement in all my work. I work, and I work, and I work, and I'm getting nothing done. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, he also has no burial, but I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. It's like, dude, you just went super dark. I mean, no clarifier, no like moment of like, hey, to those of you who have lost children, I just want to make this point. And like, no, nothing, man, he doesn't care. He is just going dark. That's what he calls that despair. He said in chapter two, he's despairing. And all we're doing is watching him despair for like six chapters. And that's only halfway through the book. Trust me. It just keeps going. So. Lord bless you and keep you. <laughs> now, seriously, what do we do? That's when we get to Job, we're going to ask questions about God. Job is written to instruct us about the God who manages this kind of a life. But Ecclesiastes asks us pointed questions about if this is true, if wisdom doesn't just account for if you save things, you'll have them later, Proverbs, if wisdom also has to account for, but sometimes no. Sometimes you get stuff and you didn't save for it. Sometimes the grasshopper, actually has a great winter and the ants die. Well, that's not the fable. That's not the way that thing works. Yeah, sometimes it is. Sometimes kids come through and just destroy anthills. Sometimes the grasshoppers get to go in and just eat everything. What's that all about? If wisdom has to account for both of those, the question for us, in light of this world, and in light of this sun-like perspective, what are we supposed to do? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is this. We need to embrace the full futility of the week, and I mean it this way. What he has just said accounts for all seven days of our perspective on weeks. We have a five-day work week, and we have a mentality of a two-day weekend, right? Work and pleasure. We've got to embrace the fact that there is nothing to be found of ultimate value any one of those days of the week, the way the world presents it. You will never achieve enough to feel like you've arrived. You will never enjoy enough to ultimately be joyful. And that is something that we have to square up with. If you don't, you are going to arrive in your 50s, 60s, 70s incredibly disappointed. The problem is these are not the predominant messages that are out there on TikTok right now, Facebook, wherever you go. These people don't make videos and have them viewed all the time. It's Mr. Beast who has gobs of money, throws it away, entertains the masses and makes more money doing it. Those are the idols of our day. These are the heroes of our day. And if we will listen to them, we will ignore this guy to our detriment. First thing we do, embrace this sense of futility and stop buying into the world's lies that smoke is actually solid because it is not. The second thing we need to do, though, is to enjoy the days that God gives us. Did you hear it there back at the end of what he was saying in chapter 2, right? I'm going to pause for a second and just tell you this. Sometimes the best we got is just to enjoy where we're at. I mentioned last week that, uh, that Zach and Leila, or two weeks ago, Zach and Leila got a house. And that's been fun. But it's also been a little bit of a rocky process of acquiring the house and securing the house and making sure that things have gone well. And at one point, Zach and I were talking about this, and I just said, but I think the best that you've got right now is to enjoy this day as a gift. It's a tough day, but it's a gift. Because the truth is, not having this day means that you died yesterday. And that's something of the wisdom that we get from the book of Ecclesiastes. What's happening today is hard, but don't run away from God and don't bury your head in the sand. Don't chase after vapors just trying to find some way to enjoy this. Recognize that what you have in its difficulties is still a gift. Parenting young kids is still a gift. Working a garbage job is still a gift. Dealing with grief is still a gift. So we're going to reject the full, or we're going to embrace the full futility of the week. We are going to enjoy the days that God's given us. And then we are going to utilize the time that God has given. Isn't there a sense over these last two weeks that you feel the sense of that death clock I was talking about, right? That, by the way, there's actually, uh, the, the calendar was what I was talking about. Basically, take all your days, put it all on one piece of paper, and just check them off, kind of. We'll do that on our fridge next couple months. Here's kind of what's happening. We'll just scratch them off. It's amazing how quickly I'm replacing those pieces of paper on our fridge. Like, whoa, th- that month is gone. Hmm. I thought I was just looking forward to my birthday. Nope, gone. When I turned 50, my dad's like, yeah, welcome to your sixth decade. Wait, 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 wait. I thought I was like entering my 50s. Like, no, you finished them. You just finished 50 years. You're now heading towards 60. Well, where did they go? I mean, I'm still like a 15-year-old sometimes is the way it feels inside. No, no, no. Time is fleeting. There's, there is a thing that you can download called the death clock that lets you put things on your computer, and it just counts down. At the very top, like you've got your clock for how, how's the day going? And then it's the death clock for how many like, days you've got, according to, you know, the extrapolated variables that you put into this thing. You may or may not find that encouraging, but you do have to do this. Recognize you don't have unlimited time. We really don't. And because it's limited, then today won't come back. When I was a, a teacher, I got to sit in on um, one of the other teachers who would come in and teach study, study skills. And she said, I want you to pretend that every day I am going to put $20 in your pocket. No, it wasn't 20. I'm doing this math wrong. 18. She was assuming, yeah. She was, ass- no, I'm doing it wrong. 16, sorry. She was assuming four hour, eight hours of sleep. There we go. Sorry, I, 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 should, I had this one, and then I lost it. 24 hours minus eight hours of sleep. $16 is going to be in your pocket every day. But it only magically appears a dollar at a time every hour. And if you forget to put your hand in the pocket, you can't take that dollar out. It'll disappear. So if you skip the 12-hour dollar, you don't get it. If you only put your hand in your pocket... Five times during the day, you only get five bucks. You don't get 16 bucks. What would you make sure you do? And the kids are like, well, I'd make sure I set an alarm, and I'd, use, I'd put my hand in my pocket so I could just get those dollars and just keep them going. She's like, yeah, very good. If you did that, you know, then 16, 16, 16, 16. What's she, what's she saying? That's time. It's not money. That's the way time kind of works. You get your 8 o'clock hour. You get your 9 o'clock hour. You get your 10 o'clock hour. Now, sometimes resting well is a good use of that dollar. But it's amazing how many we fritter away, isn't it? Sometimes, as we thought about last week, sometimes frittering that dollar away, looking to the past, and sometimes frittering that dollar away, planning for the future, forgetting that in the process, that dollar disappears from us. We want to make sure that we're utilizing the time that God's given us. And then, points four and five, trying to get here, we do want to make sure that we use the strength and the resources that we have, our work, not just for our little sandcastles, but actually to contribute to something that God is doing that's enduring. If we can be a part of helping believers in Nepal when it doesn't feel like there are others who are with these particular believers, then why would we not do this? Barb and I are talking about the other week. Okay, kind of what's next, and Barb's confessing this desire to be like, "Well, I love you guys, but I'm I'm going to be in Nepal. That's where the work is that God's given me." I'm not announcing that Barb's moving necessarily or anything like that. Don't <laughs> worry. There's grandkids here, so I think there's still an anchor. You know, if, no matter how much the bungee cord stretches, it's going to be bringing back. But I, I love that perspective. I've got strength, and I don't want to use it for me. This is the illustration that Mike was giving us from John Piper, See My Shells. We want to make sure that the strength, the money, the time, the energy that God's given us, we are using for his work, which will endure and flies in the face of everything else. If we're actually investing in our children's character rather than in their entertainment, that endures. If we're actually investing in gospel work being done, either through being a good witness at work, suffering well at work, so that you are establishing a basis for a testimony at work, that endures. There's a lot of stuff we do for ourselves that doesn't endure, that will be blown away. And we have to find ways to make sure that we are thinking about how are we under the sun using our strength for Jesus work. But then the last one that I I think I really want to end with and park on for a while has to do with the second verse that, that Leslie read for us. It's the Hebrews 11 one. Hebrews 11, as you know, is what's been called the hall of faith. People who see what's going on in the book of Ecclesiastes and say, no, I'm going to live for something else. And the point that he makes at the very end of that little text there is without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. One, we have whole apologetic discussions about that. Faith has to acknowledge the existence of God and we can We can present to a world that it is actually logical to believe in the existence of God rather than the randomness chance without a God. It is more probable, it seems, to believe in God's existence. But that's only one half of faith. It is possible to be a theist yet to live like an atheist because we believe that this God exists, but he has absolutely no reward for me. That's not faith. We don't have a deistic perspective that our God started this like a watchmaker and then just lets the things spin out and we got to find our reward wherever we can. That's the heart cry. This was my reward for all my toil. No, says the Christian. No, says faith. I believe not only in the existence of God, I believe in the reward that God will give. And so our fifth point is that we find joy in God's presence as our reward under the sun in the midst of difficulty more reading but 10 verses let these wash over you if this is where you find your life right now we move outside of ecclesiastes at this point in order to get some hope and breath air and fresh air on this all right by faith This is the end of Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Why? That's the first illustration of what it means to believe that God's going to reward you. Are you going to build this? Yes. Why? Because it's my duty. That's why. And there's no joy. No, he built an ark because he believed that God would reward the building of the ark. He didn't just believe in the existence of God. He believed in the reward of God. And so he believed, we believe then that God rewards us. We believe that God rewards the hardworking. Whatever you do, Colossians chapter three, work heartily is for the Lord and not for men. Why? Here's the reward. Hear it. Knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Do you have a garbage job that feels like this? Do you feel like you're not getting promoted, not getting seen, that you're retired? isn't working out that okay fine sorry but fine because that wasn't supposed to be a reward what's your reward for those who are working work hard why because you receive an inheritance from the lord as your reward We believe that God rewards the unseen. You know these verses from Matthew chapter 6. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. Why? Jesus couldn't be more clear here. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. When you fast, anoint. Look good. Why? Because your father who sees in secret will reward you. Give this way. Pray this way. Fast this way. Why? Because God is a rewarder. Believe it. You don't have to post your devotions. People don't have to see what's going on in your world. If it's real, if it's genuine with God, whether it's seen or unseen, He particularly rewards the unseen. We believe that God rewards the hated. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, revile you, spurn you on account of the son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy in that day. What? Well, for this reason, your reward is great in heaven. Guys, I am not making this up. There are 10 of these. Love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Why? Why get ripped off by somebody who's a cheat Because your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high. Why? He's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. This was the verse that carried me through Spanky. Spanky was my black car. The car from from, we used to bring Zach home from the hospital. My little black 1994 Civic hatchback, it was great. It was the SI model, and I was backing out in a parking lot, and somebody slammed right into me. I was like, oh, please, please, don't call the cops. Don't call the cops. I'm like, yeah, okay, I get it, I get it. He came around, he smashed into my trunk. We're spanky. Got information, had a witness, didn't call the police. Came home, got a phone call from dad. Not my dad, her dad. Here you rear-ended my daughter. No, no. Yeah, you, you backed into her. That's what she said. And that's the way it ended. Called the witness. Oh, I don't want to get involved. Injustice! Unfairness! This was Spanky, my heart's delight. I just to love my enemies and to do good. And to be kind. I got his number and I called him back and I said, I don't agree with anything. I think you're lying. But God's been kind to me whenever I've been unkind and ungrateful. And this is the way he deals with the world. So this is the way I'm going to deal with you. I am going to step back and not pursue this with you. But understand, it's not because you're right. I had to say that. But it was this verse that God rewards the kind he rewards the generous given it will be given to you good measure pressed down shaken together running over putting in your lap why because with the measure you use it will be measured back to you by god Luke 14, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Why? Because they cannot repay you, but you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Why? Because this is the way God works. He rewards those who do things because they trust him, not because of what they see under the sun. So that God rewards the generous, the hospitable. He rewards the afflicted, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to things that are seen under the sun, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Why is it that we can endure when life is miserable and somebody else is making it miserable? When we're afflicted because we believe that God has an unseen eternal reward in place for us. In the midst of this, so we can actually then in First Peter chapter 1 rejoice in it, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So at the end, if God actually blesses work for eternal purposes and actually brings joy through his presence, then we believe that God rewards the faithful. 2 John verse 1, many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not fe- confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, but watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for. But may win a full reward. Now, one more quote, but listen to that one more time. Please let me say this to you with his words. Watch yourselves. You're walking back into a climate of lies. You are walking back into the smoke and the toxic vapor of this world that will tell you that to be presently popular is better than to be eternally faithful. You are walking back into a world that will tell you that what you see under the sun is all there is. And we need to teach our children differently. We need to set examples differently. We need to speak with our neighbors differently. We can't offer them what they've already got because it's killing them and it's leading them to this same internal despair. They are desperate for something different. And so I am pleading you, watch yourselves in the midst of this culture so that you may not lose what we've worked for, but so that you and we may win a full reward. You guys know the C.S. Lewis quote the mud pies at the street rather than the holiday at the beach. George MacDonald had a very similar thing to say. I want to close with this. He said, I know the kind of thing you do care for, the low, dirty things. You were like a child, if such there could be, that preferred mud and the gutter to all the beautiful toys at the corner shop. But though these things are not the things you want, they are the things you need And the time is coming when you will say, Ah, me, what a fool I was not to look at the precious things and see how precious they were and put out my hand for them when they were being offered to me. I think through our time in Ecclesiastes, we're going to see God say, No, no, no. Smack our hands away from some stuff and then guide our hands towards what's good. And you're saved. You're not slaves. You're not stupid. So you can live this way. And he will reward us. Let's pray. Father, for the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross. He scorned its shame. And he's now seated at your side, pleading for grace for us to follow that same path. We're grateful that we don't have to scorn the shame of this world. We don't have to endure the cross in order to earn anything from you. We thank you that everything he earned has been downloaded and given to us, to our account. So Lord, may we live in faith that that's true. And may we live for the moment of his great revelation and his great honor that we could share in it with him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a few sa- songs we're going to sing that.